invite you to open up the book of Exodus in your Bible, chapter 50, uh, page 55, chapter 22. So if you take the Pew Bible, it's page 55, and it is chapter 22 that we're going to be looking at today. And as you're getting there, just to remind you, if you weren't with us, or maybe tell you for the first time, if you weren't with us last week, we've changed things up a bit in terms of preaching. Um, we are doing the sermon a little differently for two reasons in our growth as a community. Um, the sermon will be broken up with spaces for reflection, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, to give you the opportunity to digest, to reflect on what's being shared from God's Word, and hopefully to carry that conversation through those doors. But it's also being provided as a way for you to see and appreciate, if you don't already, the integration of the whole worship service, that the liturgy, the work of the people is, that, is what that means. What we do in the service is not just a checklist that you kind of go through on the insert on the page, but that everything is supposed to tie together and everything's supposed to flow into each other. And we're hoping by doing that in, along with the sermon that that will provide more reflection and more of an appreciation for why we do the different things we do during the worship service. So just to prepare you along the way as we're trying this new thing. As you've opened up to Exodus 22, you see that it's the law. We're still in the law. And when it comes to the law, um, Lawyers tend to see something that most of us fail to appreciate, that the law has a beauty all of its own, that the law is beautiful. Now, from our standpoint, if we're not lawyers, the rest of us, we tend to see the law as rather tedious. We see, tend to see the law as a burden. And it's no different when we get to this part of the book of Exodus. As I mentioned last week, these are chapters that we tend to skip over. Uh, these chapters that are formerly known as the book of the covenant, we tend to just kind of gloss over because... You know, it's just hard to concentrate on all of it. Even though compared to other legal codes, if you were to line these chapters up with other legal codes, it's kind of fairly brief. We still have a hard time. You know, we get lost in the details. After a while, we start to question the relevance. At some point, we say, why am I reading this? Why bother? And as we introduced last week, and as I hope you'll continue to see today, underlying these rules for day-to-day -day life for the Israelites is a standard for justice that still has much to offer us today in our lives and in our world. As we talked about last week, every part of life, every relationship matters to this God. And in fact, every relationship we have is interconnected. It's related to our relationship with God. Contrary to what we believe, what we've maybe often been taught about the law when it comes to the Bible, justice for God is not about strict and rigid rules, but what we discovered and will continue to see Justice for God is about consistency. Justice for God is about flexibility. Justice for God is about equity. And perhaps for some of us, the most shocking revelation as we go through Exodus is that many of us have been instructed, especially in the Old Testament, that the whole point of the law was primarily punitive. But what we began to see last week, and I hope we continue to see, is God's primary purpose in giving the law was not punishment but restoration. It was given as a means of reconciliation, the rebuilding of relationships, the rebuilding of community. Today, we focus on a series of case laws that are about our social responsibility. If last week talked about sort of a broader stroke of community, this gets specific about how do we know and, and engage our neighbor. These examples, and that's what they are, examples are intended to shape our understanding of how we are to get along with each other. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I am going to read an excerpt. So if you have your Bible open, page 55, we're going to start in verse 21 in chapter 22. So read along with me. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender and charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people, do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. 
You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Kind of again, if you read it out loud, and it seems an odd list. These are examples. I really want to underscore that for us as we go through this. These examples are meant to serve as illustrations of how the Ten Commandments are put into practice in the day-to-day life of the Israelites, in specific social contexts. They are not all-encompassing. They do not consider every possible contingency. They're not intended to. Instead, beyond their specifics, though relevant to Israel in her life, beyond their specifics, these case laws seek to provide us with a fundamental principle, fundamental principles for being in community together, for being in covenant, that biblical word covenant as God's people. You know, I think in many ways, the last verse that you heard read in, verse, uh, in chapter 22 provides the guiding principle for this section of the law. It's this simple sentence, you are to be my holy people. You are to be my holy people. Holy, holiness. What, what does holy mean? That's a very spiritual, religious word We gets thrown around a lot. A simple definition of holiness, to be holy, is to be set apart, to be devoted to God and his purposes. That's all well and good. We're, most of us are pretty much could get there. But where we begin to get confused, where we begin to have some trouble, is the next question, which is, okay, given that, how does someone or something Become holy. You know, many of us have been raised, many of us have learned, many of us think that holiness is a result of something that we do. Holiness is a result of something that we do. Holiness, we believe, is becoming like God. So then holiness is what happens when we conform our attitudes and our actions to God's will. That's when we think holiness, if we may not put it in those words, that's what we equate holiness with. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm here to tell you that is 100% wrong. Biblically incorrect. And it's important that we get this, re, this, this re-understanding, this new understanding of holiness. Holiness, biblically, as God reveals it here and later on in, in the word, holiness is not a goal that we achieve. Holiness is a state of being. Holiness, if you will, is a reflection of who we have already become because of God's action on our behalf. Because of God's action on our behalf. We are holy, if you will, not by our self-effort. We are holy by the fact that God declares us to be so. We are holy because God has intervened. Because God has taken the initiative in our lives. We are holy because God has rescued us from slavery, from the Egypt of our lives. We are holy because God has delivered us from death and set us apart through his son, Jesus Christ. Holiness does not depend upon us. It is wholly dependent upon the Lord. It is God who makes us holy. It is this God who sets us apart. This is very liberating. Really, if you think about it, it's very, very liberating, and it's very, very important that we get this subtle shift because understanding even this redefinition of holiness once again brings us back to a place that we often go that also is dangerous. When we understand the proper definition of holiness as God defines it, that means the law is not a checklist. The law is not a checklist. It's not the 10 steps for setting ourselves apart. The law is not the the way in which we make the grade. It's not the way we earn the gold star for being holier than thou. The 10 words, the examples and principles that come from the case laws that apply them are a means of living into our identity as God's holy people. Like a mirror, they are a reflection of who we already are, of who we have become because God has set us apart, because the Lord saved us. If you're still struggling with this this redefinition, let me put it this way. 
I am a Twitman. My daughter, who is right over there, is a Twitman too. And I'm sorry to tell you this, Emma, there's nothing you can do about it. Just like there's nothing I can do about it. Just like for some of you, that may also be where you, you often, in terms of your family, go, why, why? There's, I, when I say I am a Twitman, or when I say that my daughter is a Twitman, I'm not saying to you, I'm trying to be a Twitman. I'm becoming a Twitman. I am a Twitman. I am a Twitman. It's not a goal, it's an identity. What results for me, I had no, no say about becoming a Twitman. All that's left for me is to live or not to live into my family DNA. To live or not to live into my identity. What might even be a more helpful definition or a helpful clarification is to think in terms of adoption. If you perhaps are here today as a child of adoption or perhaps you have adopted a child into your family, one of the biggest struggles if you are the adopted is to wonder if you belong, to feel the burden at times that you have to prove yourself, that you have to earn your way into the family. But if you've experienced what adoption really means, what adoption is, you don't have to earn your way. You belong because you have been adopted. You have been chosen. You don't have to earn it or prove it. You are because you are a part of the family. You belong. Beloved, Israel is holy because Israel was born through the seed of Abraham. It had nothing to do with the Israelites. The Israelites are holy because God set them apart, beginning with the son of Abraham. And you and I are holy, not because of anything we do, not because we earn it, but because we have been adopted into the family in Jesus Christ. Now this is, again, as I said, really, really good news. What's not so good from our perspective, is what I'm about to say next. Holiness is comprehensive. And this is where the analogy that I just gave breaks down. I can be a Twitman, and there's nothing I can do about it, I am a Twitman, but I can also be at the same time a pastor. I can also be an American. I can also be German. I can have multiple identities in the midst of my identity as a Twitman. But when it comes to God, Holiness means being set apart, belonging to God. And holiness is comprehensive. To be holy is to holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, belong to God. There is no middle ground. Part of the reason why that definition that we have that was wrong about holiness is so convenient is because it allows for a middle ground. If holiness is about what I do, if holiness is about something I achieve, well, then I'm on my way, but I haven't gotten there yet. So I get to, like we talked about last week, compartmentalize my life. This part of my life is holy. This part of my life is not. But if the definition is wrong and holiness is not about what we do, what we achieve, but holiness is about what God has done and that we have been set apart, then what that means is that holiness is all-encompassing. It's all or nothing. There is no middle ground. And this is why God repeatedly says throughout his word that worship belongs to God alone. Because worship encompasses all of life. You belong to me. You've been set apart by me. There is no other. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. Now if you're tracking with me, then the implications are this. If holiness means belonging wholly to God, if there is no middle ground, then anything less is unholy. Anything less is ungodly. And that is important for us to get because that helps us to enter into, I didn't read it, but if you go three verses before what I read, some really funky capital crimes. I mean, stuff that we wouldn't want to read out loud in church. For all the high schoolers who are left, you want to, you're going to open up your Bibles now and be like, oh my gosh, did you see this? Did you see this? These three examples are examples. They're not meant to be the end-all, be-all, but they have a common theme in the midst of their randomness. They're all about false worship. They're all about saying, this is not okay. This is unholy. This is ungodly. You can't manipulate God. 
You can't blend God with something else. You can't have divided loyalties. These violations, the case laws want to drive out, draw out, obscure the reflection of God's image. They distort God's character. These substitutes don't save us. But more than that, these substitutes threaten our salvation because they create confusion, because they result in chaos. They cut us off. They cripple us. And it's not just that they affect us. They're so damaging, so unholy, ungodly, that it's not just about what they do to us. They have the ability to affect each other. They have the ability to pollute the entire community. And so we see something here, the implications of holiness, something that we don't like. We don't like to talk about, that there are limits, that there are boundaries that we cannot cross. And let's just put it out there. In our Western American world, this does not go down well. Because here in God's word, we don't have an absolute right to do whatever we want to do. There is no such thing as an absolute right of privacy. What's clearly spelled out here is there are boundaries that our personal actions, even what we would call our private actions, impact the whole community. We have, whether we intend to or not, by allowing things that are not of God into our lives, not just to affect ourselves, but to affect others. And that is why God says something that causes us to stop, causes us to get a little ruffled. False gods, false worship must be put to death. It must be cut off. It must be put to death because if it isn't put to death, if it isn't cut off, it will kill us. It will destroy our community. Now, back in Israel's time, that required the community to literally put someone to death. And we don't like that very much. Well, the good news is we've gotten a little bit more sophisticated and Jesus has come. And I'm not telling anybody to go out now and start killing people. Or, or you know, taking up the cause to put things to death. The application of this universally is within the, your own life, put to death the things that are not of God. Within your own life, cut off the things that are not holy, that are ungodly. And beloved, we may live in different times, but our gods are a lot more hidden. We sacrifice ourselves in much more secretive ways that are often hard to miss. And that is why this part of our worship is so important. This is why every week we confess. We've talked about this before. For some of us who maybe don't come from a Lutheran background, and that's totally okay, some of us get bent about the prayer of confession because we've been forgiven in Christ. But if we understand holiness, we understand this part of our liturgy. The prayer of confession is not a checklist. It's not a checklist to holiness, like somehow by praying the prayer of confession, we get holier. The purpose of the prayer of confession and worship is reorientation. Remembering who we are. Remembering whose we are. And so in the insert that's in your bulletin, I invite you to look at the two questions that are there and use them as a means of your own prayer of confession. I can't speak to the numbering. If you want to know where questions one through five are, I don't know what, what, what went wrong. If you look at the page, you'll know what I'm talking about. But use these questions to enter into a space where you can be reoriented. Get specific. There are specific gods in your life and mine that we are sacrificing ourselves for that are not of God. Let me give you a few moments of reflection. Drew's going to be playing a little bit as we do so. And then one of our own company will close out this time with a prayer of confession. Let's reflect together.
come before you, God, with hearts that need to be reoriented, Lord. We look at your law and we confess, God, that too often we use your law for our own purposes. We look to apply your law in our lives in ways that serve the purpose only of the law itself or for our own justification or sense of personal power, God. We confess, God, that as we examine your 10 words, Lord, as we come to understand what it means to apply your law in our life, that when you gave us the gift of your law, you did not give it to us as a way of constraining us, but to set us free. You gave it to us as a new way of approaching relationship with each other, approaching relationship with you and today God we come before you looking at those places in our lives where we've failed to do that looking at those places in our lives Lord where we need to have a better understanding of how it is that we can live into who it is you've already made us to be As if the gift of your law wasn't precious enough, God, then you sent your son to die on a cross for us to fulfill that law. And there are times in our life, Lord, where we take for granted the fact that because of what Jesus did for us, we are holy and we do not have to apply law, understand law, or do law to be any more holy than we already are, God. Forgive us, God, for not understanding that, for falling short in places, Lord. Give us wisdom, Lord, this week and in, the, in, in times coming, Lord, to understand how to embrace our holy nature in every corner of our life, God. all this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Living into our identity. Being, not becoming holy. That's the reason for these laws, these examples. In engaging us, in delivering us, God has stamped our whole lives with his presence. Israel was set apart for a life of service to the Lord and through that life of service to be a witness to the world. And beloved, in Christ, so are we. Holiness is manifest in our love for each other, for our neighbors. But what you'll notice here is that the Lord gets pretty specific about who our neighbor is. Long before Jesus will answer the question of a teacher of the law who asks, who is my neighbor? The Lord gets pretty specific about who our neighbor is. You see in these examples that Yahweh gives specific titles, specific words, specific examples, illustrations regarding foreigners, widows, orphans and the poor. There's a particularity to this list and I don't want to shy away from it. These are specific groups of people. They mean something. But there's also a common denominator that's bigger than these specific groups of people that are called out. The Lord's focus, the Lord's definition of neighbor is the least of these. The vulnerable and the powerless. And back when this was given to the Israelites, foreigners, widows, and orphans were powerless in society. In the ancient world, foreigners, widows, and orphans were subject to repeated harm, were victims of enslavement. 
were often simply left alone to starve, suffer, and die. And this is similarly true in our world. But what I want you to see, what you've got to get, is it's more than just a group of three. What is given to us here through these examples is more than a category or class of people. Once again, beloved, we have a description of an orientation. When God defines neighbor, he's defining defining the space of life where there is no representation, where there is no support, where there is no protection. When God is defining neighbor, he's talking about that part of the neighborhood that you and I tend to turn a blind eye towards, that we overlook or we deny responsibility for. When God defines neighbor, he's talking about the forgotten, abandoned place. The place where, for most of us, lives become statistics or lives become stereotypes. But in the places where we make lives into statistics and stereotypes, God says quite plainly here, my people. My people. This is the place, this is the soundtrack of life that God listens to. His ears are attuned to the cries of those who have no voice anywhere else. Beloved, we're starting to see that this definition of holiness, in one sense, this redefinition is very, very liberating and freeing. And yet at the same time, the bigger it gets, the more the implications are for us. That to be holy is to be as God is holy. To be holy is to be oriented as God is is oriented. It means to be committed where God is committed. It is to be engaged where the Lord is engaged. It is to be compassionate as the Lord is compassionate. And again, going back to our definition, in case you forgot it, anything less is unholy. Anything less is ungodly. Anything less leads to death. Another way of putting this is we're seeing that holiness brings out for us that it's not about the letter of the law. Holiness is about the spirit of the law. Holiness means it's not about the letter of the law. Holiness means it's going beyond the law. And the examples that were given point this out, draw this out, that it's much, much more than living according to the letter of the law. Let's draw some of those things out. For you and I, we live in a world where one of the prized virtues of society is civility. If nothing else, we should be civil to one another. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just be civil? God pushes beyond civility here. God pushes beyond civility and says, don't just be civil, be engaged. Be cooperative. If you have your Bibles open, and if you don't, you might want to open up to this. Go to chapter 23. This will blow your mind. Okay, chapter 23, verse 4. When God pushes past civility, he uses the most dramatic example, our enemy. God puts, if your enemy's goat has wandered off, then being holy, living into your identity, reflecting God's character, requires you to go above and beyond. If your enemy's goat has run off, don't just go, not my problem. Serves him right. Uh Uh-huh. Go and get it. Get engaged, cooperate, go and get your enemy's goat and bring it back to him. That is holiness. Now, let me and stay there because go to verse 5 because then God covers all the bases and does a switch on us, does a reversal. Because the first verse, verse 4, talks about someone that we don't like. Someone we hate, our enemy. But look at verse 5. Verse 5, just in case we started to have the, starting to plan the exceptions, the letter of the law in our mind. In verse 5, God says, okay, the example before was about your enemy, but now it's about someone who hates you. Someone who calls you enemy. And I think if we just took a pause for a second, we could all agree that conventional wisdom, common logic, good rule of thumb, is if somebody hates you, you generally give them their distance. Prudence says if someone hates you, you stay out of their way. Well, that may be prudence, but it's not compassion and it's not holiness. And God pushes beyond that in verse 5. God says for that person who hates you, if they're stranded along the side of the road because their possessions have toppled on top of them because their donkey got so worn out because they didn't know how to pack, don't distance, don't stay away. 
Go and help them. Being holy means engaging the person who even hates you. If you realize something, I mean, this, I don't know what you were taught. I was always taught that later on in the New Testament, Jesus does something radical. Jesus all of a sudden starts telling us to love our enemies, and that was like huge. No one had ever heard of that before. But here we see in Exodus that contrary to what we've often been taught, before Jesus tells us to love our enemies, it's right here. When Jesus later tells us to love our enemies, it's not something new. What Jesus is doing is making explicit what the law implies. Go beyond the law. Live into the spirit of the law. Holiness is more than civility. It's being engaged. It's being cooperative. But holiness, as we just saw, is also more than being prudent. And God gives a great example here that holiness isn't about prudence. And prudence is considered wisdom in our day-to-day lives. It's good to be prudent. God says, don't be prudent. Be generous. Don't hold back. And and the example that's given here, and it's just an example, but it is a concrete one, is lending money. And it's meant to be illustrative of a larger idea. And this has caused a lot of controversy in the church. And it's specific, but it's bigger than than what we're going to talk about. God says, think about loaning money. The technical term here is usury. What God's getting at is loaning money, especially to people who are in need. Usury is exorbitant interest. And God says something that ought to be logical that he ought not to have to say to us. If you're loaning money to someone who's in need, then by the very definition, interest is exorbitant. If someone has nothing and you loan to them at interest, you're charging them something they cannot pay back. Your interest is exorbitant. And so God instead says, look, instead of loaning money like this, loan money to this person who is in need like you would loan it to any family member. Interest-free. Now, for those of you who have families where you charge each other interest, I don't want to know about that. (laughs) But God says, see this person as your brother and sister and treat them as you would treat anyone else in your family. Interest-free. Now, you may be in hearing this, because this is, like I said, very controversial, starting to go, okay, yeah, but pastor, what defines need? What defines someone who's in need? Because that's a misused word. What What defines need? God gives it to us right here. Need is defined by the use of their cloak as collateral. Now, this is not familiar for us, but back in the day, your cloak was your core personal possession. I mean, you strip it down to the, the most fundamental thing you have, it's your cloak. It's your covering during the day, and frankly, it's your bedding at night. That's why here, in giving this example, God spells out, hey, at sundown, if someone's giving you their cloak as collateral, if that's all they have, at sundown, give it back to them. Even if you haven't been repaid. Because that's the only thing between that person and the cold. Beloved, the point of the cloak pledge is not to make sure you get your money back. The point of the cloak pledge is to preserve the dignity of the person that you are helping. And so what we're seeing here is that God is not all that interested in giving us guidelines for running a successful business. God is not all that interested in giving us tips for wise financial management. And the proof of this is that in our culture, I mean, we all know this, right? In our culture, lending to someone in need is a way to make money. But in God's economy, lending is a way to help people get back on their feet. Lending is a way to help people get back on their feet. This is a reminder that we are responsible for our neighbor. And that our responsibility for our neighbor is the responsibility that they survive. And that responsibility that our neighbor survives always takes priority over our right to make a profit. Ho. Our responsibility to make sure our neighbor survives always takes priority over our right to make a profit. Now, you can all be still sitting here. I am too. It's not, that ain't prudent. That ain't prudent. It's not a good way to manage your money. But it's a perfect way to reveal God's grace. And more than that, it's a perfect way to live by God's grace. That's why, once again, Jesus later on will make explicit what the law implies. When he pushes this example even further, remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, hey, hey, don't just pass up the interest. Pass up the principle too. Lend without expecting to get anything back. 
And the between the lines comment here is God knows probably one of the most ominous, dangerous, insidious, false gods that we can worship is money, is our possessions. And so again, you see, it's not just that you're taking care of your neighbor. When you take care of your neighbor, you're actually taking care of yourself. If you will, in the economics of the kingdom, in the economics of holiness, it's not, well, their loss, my gain. In the economy of the kingdom, in the economics of holiness, it's always their loss, my loss. Their gain, my gain. Civility, prudence, the last principle, the last example here in these case laws is one that's specifically said by God, don't follow the crowd. Don't follow the crowd. Lead and encourage others by your own actions. Holiness is not following the crowd. And he talks about it in the courtroom and he talks about it in the community. But what I want you to notice is that when the Lord is laying down this communal standard, do you notice the emphasis on personal responsibility? The call for a personal commitment to justice, a personal commitment to fairness, a personal commitment to truth-telling in relationship to your neighbor. It's all about, for God, personal accountability. It's all about personal investment. If you will, for God, one's personal behavior shapes the community. One's personal behavior shapes the community. We need to hear this because we get this backwards. We live and operate as though the community is shaped shapes the personal behavior. God says the individual's holiness, being, living into their identity, reflecting my character is what shapes the community. You and I live in a world where we do it the opposite, where the community, our accountability, our sense of investment is defined by the community. An example of this is as you hear something of this, some of you may have the dialogue that goes on in your head while the preaching's happening that may go, hey, I pay my taxes. I pay my taxes. I follow the laws of the land like everybody else. And beloved, let me tell you, today in our world, the least of these are protected by oppression from the law. And they are provided to, by some, to some extent, from our taxes and our contributions. But beloved, hear this. That is the bare minimum. That is the letter of the law. And Yahweh calls us to much more than this. In many parts of the world, foreigners, widows, orphans, despite laws, despite taxes, despite contributions, are badly mistreated. Children without parental protection are terribly malnourished. Thousands of children are forced into fighting in armies even though they are just children. Millions, millions are caught in the web of human trafficking where they are forced into slavery or the sex trade. In our own backyard, in our own backyard, people around us are losing their jobs, losing their homes, struggling to put food on their table. Beloved, as God's people, we are called to seek justice for the powerless in our world, to make sure that all are treated with dignity and not oppressed. As God's people, we cannot, we must not step back and assume the government will do the job for caring for the powerless. As followers of Christ, we cannot delegate the practices of holiness and justice to missionaries. It's more than just writing a check. We must keep our eyes, our hands, our wallets, our hearts open so that we can extend justice and grace to those whom the Lord brings before us. And if you're doubting that it starts with the individual and not with the community, let me again quote Jesus who was this blunt. When you do it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do it unto me. Now, I'm not standing up here and saying this is easy. By no means. I'm not standing up here and saying that this is simple. It is hard and it is complicated. But what I am standing up here and saying, because of the word of God, because of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God who is within us, that this is possible. 
Because we have been set apart for this purpose. Now you may be sitting here and your mind is swimming. I can't possibly help the millions that you're quoting. I can't possibly deal with everything that's out there. And you're right. We can't possibly reach everyone. But we can. And we are called. And we have been set apart to care and intervene for the people that God puts before us. I can't think of a better time to take the offering, can you? It's funny, I got the same reaction in the first service. I really didn't mean it in terms of the literal offering. I meant it because to understand why we take an offering in service. Yeah, it's important what you put in the plate. But it's more than that. This is the time in the service where what we put in the plate is symbolic, suggestive of a much, much deeper commitment and call. And so I invite you, before the ushers come forward, take a moment, look at the questions, and consider beyond what you put in the plate, what and where is God calling you to go beyond the bare minimum? Where is God calling you to be holy as God is holy to your neighbor? Let's take the offering.
may be sitting here this morning and you wouldn't be alone if your heart is so hard. If you've become so cynical that you think, you know what? If the law can't save us, and if this is what being holy is all about and we can't meet it, surely God can rely on someone else. Surely breaking a few laws won't hurt anybody, right? Beloved, if that's your story, if that's your heart, before you marginalize yourself, hear and understand that there is so much more at stake. What we do or don't do doesn't make us holy. It doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't draw us closer to God. But what we do or don't do affects how others experience the holiness of God. We violate, we distort the character, the person of this God when we turn a blind eye. When we take advantage of someone else, when we make a profit at another's expense, when we oppress or mistreat others for the sake of our own gain. It's more than just breaking the law. It's disavowing our past. It's denying our identity. It's as if to say, I am not a Twyfman. It's as if to say, I do not belong to this God. It's to live as if we're self-sufficient. As if we saved ourselves. And we know better. We know better. That's why God, at the beginning of this section and at the end, repeats the same statement. Our motivation for living into our identity as a holy people is because we know how it feels. We are to remember where we came from. We are to remember how we got here. And for some of us today, that's easier than for others. Some of us today grew up in a Christian home. Some of us today, students and older people included, grew up in a Christian home. And so you've always had God in your life. You've had no bumps in the road. You've experienced no mighty acts of deliverance. And my word to you, pastorally, is to learn the story of your family. Because somewhere God worked in the life of your family so that you could grow up in that home with this God. And if you don't know that story, you run the risk of going the same place that later generations of Israelites will go. Who weren't there when the waters parted. Who didn't see the plagues. Who didn't experience God's deliverance. Who began to believe that they saved themselves. Who began to believe that they were the masters of their own destinies. Beloved... We are called to remember where we came from, how we got here. We are not to be holier than thou. We are to be holy because we have been set apart, because God showed up. We are a compassionate people, not because it gains us something. We are a compassionate people because we have benefited from the Lord's compassion upon us. We go above and beyond for our neighbor. We show mercy to our enemy. We stand up for the defenseless because this is what the Lord God has done for us. And that is why God says, remember once, for once we were. For once, not too long ago, brothers and sisters in Christ, we were strangers in the world too. Alienated from this God by our rebellion. You and I once lived and believed ourselves to be widows and orphans. Alone. Without a family. Without a place to belong. Once, you and I, we were debtors too. Crushed under the weight of our stinginess. Our self-absorption. Our bankruptcy because of a long line of bad credit. Of bad choices. Of sin. This God, this God loved us in Jesus Christ. This God loves us still. Jesus became a man, a real human being, to invite us as participants, not foreigners, participants into God's kingdom. This Jesus set a place for us at this table. He set a place for us, a place where he has adopted us as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters, and welcomed us into God's family, where we don't have to earn our place at the table. We belong because Jesus has set the table for us. With this Jesus, a place has been prepared for us. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
we are no longer widows. But as the church, together, we are the beautiful bride of Christ. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. But there is no talk of interest. There is no talk or mention of collateral. There is only holiness. All debts have been paid. We are free. We have been set apart. By the spirit of Christ, this law that was once written on tablets of stone has been inscribed on our hearts of flesh. We have been blessed to be a blessing. We have been set apart to serve. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved in Christ, my family, let us be a holy people. An Exodus-shaped community. Let us live responsibly, not just in church, but in our everyday lives. Let us follow God's law, not as a means to our salvation, but as the way in which we show the world that we have been saved. As the way in which we reveal the compassion and holiness of this God in Christ to others. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.